Perhaps you could arrange to bring me a television. Welcome to the South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. Steve Walsh here with me. Hello. This week we will be concluding our Boverload. That's the Bowie Overload. For those of you <laughs> joining late. For those of you that haven't been using that phrase like we have for the last <laughs> few months to discuss how much David Bowie stuff we're putting out there. We talked about David Bowie's career a few episodes back. If only I had the numbers to hand. Go to southlandhardcore.com and uh, click the episode guide. We talked about Bowie's career up to 1979, and then we did another episode, Bowie's career 1980 onwards, the music. And today we're talking about David Bowie's films. David Bowie on film. David Bowie in films. Loads of stuff. I suggested earlier this week doing two episodes on this, just because there's so much, isn't there? There is a lot, yeah. But not enough for two episodes, we've decided. Let's just say all we've got to say... Get it all out. Yeah. One of the greatest and most important musical artists of all time. But also a seasoned screen actor, Steve. We'll see uh, over the next hour or so. The Man Who Fell to Earth, Pontius Pilate, Andy Warhol. Big roles. Nikola Tesla. And even beyond the sort of name roles, the kind of roles that he's played, the range within his film career in terms of the kind of characters he's played is remarkable, I think. You can follow us on Twitter at SLHC, on Instagram at SLHC also. If you want to buy anything on Amazon, go to southlandhardcore.com and click the banner, the Amazon banner, and then, then do your shopping. Uh, so any of these Bowie films we recommend, get them all through us and you'll get, uh, we'll get, you'll get the uh, film at the cheapest price possible and we'll get uh, 5% of the money. Same with uh, Bowie's music. Anything you buy. You know, if you're going to buy a TV. Of course, if you want to buy a T-shirt or a Baby Grow with some Southland Hardcore-related printing on it, the only place to go mm. is southlandhardcore.com. Today, Steve, I also put vests up so you can get a Southland Hardcore vest if you're a muscly man. I mean, if you're not muscly... <laughs> no, you could go for like that kind of Tony Soprano look, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Harry Flowers. So Bowie's film career really starts in 1976 with The Man Who Fell to Earth, the role that he's... Probably most known for, most remembered for, almost defines his screen career. But in 1969 was his first uh, appearance on film, Steve. The Image. Yeah, uh, directed by Michael Armstrong. It's available to view on YouTube, isn't it? Is it was it a student film? Yeah, it was very student. low budget, isn't it? Yeah. It's uh, It's basically... David Bowie and another actor called Michael Byrne. So it's a, a two-hander, I believe they call it in the business. What business is that, Steve? <laughs> the film industry. The um, uh, video rental business. <laughs> and it's very basic in terms of how it's filmed. It's like a kind of arty version of a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. it's The, the, the main premise is... Uh, Michael Byrne is an artist and he's painted a picture and he's in his massive house, absolutely huge house that this starving artist is running. He's like running all over the place. People have massive houses in the uh, late 60s, Steve, I believe. Um, and David Bowie appears as the character from the painting and keeps trying to attack him. 
and Michael Bowen keeps killing him, and then David Bowie appears again and keeps trying to attack him. So Michael Bowen keeps killing him, and then David Bowie appears and keeps trying to attack him. Michael Bowen, and it's pretty much that, isn't it? Do you think there's anything to be gotten from it? Because it's not good, is it? It's not good. I mean, the performance is... It's a pretty... I'm, I'm not an actor. But surely, if you're looking for a performance, being scared and being scary, pretty basic, isn't it? It's not, do you know I mean? it's not like you're running a gamut of emotions, you've got to do huge transitions, you've got to, There's no dialogue, so you've not got to worry about selling that. It's essentially, just look a bit... And they seem incapable uh, of conveying very basic emotions the actual style of the filming doesn't help as well it's very sort of jumpy with a lot of intrusive sound and music over the top it's a very busy piece of work and uh, as you pointed out in my notes uh, I've written bad in capitals hmm. and underlines because it's not good although I don't know if you saw this I watched it on YouTube as I'm sure you did the comments underneath were universally positive yeah, People are like, I this think... is great, isn't it? I was like, no, I didn't bother leaving a comment. Yeah, because but, you, don't you know, David that. Bowie's done quite a lot of um, cameo appearances over his career, which yeah. we'll talk about. Um, similarly with music, he's always guesting on things, and he's, yeah. you know, he's always popping up. So he's, he seems quite game to just, yeah, turn up and do oh, it. I can understand. But, no, but what I'm saying is there's... Um, when you go, when somebody's cameos you watch, like a 30 seconds of David Bowie in Yellowbeard. Yeah, yeah. Know, quite bad, uh, Python-esque... Uh, Graham Rock. Chapman film um, and people are like brilliant it's like 30 seconds he does nothing he walks <laughs> in he's got a shark fin on his back and he walks out people are like this is incredible so maybe Bowie's got like quite a massive online uh, and this is the fan thing base. We're, we're both very fond of him but you don't have to pretend that that's a good film just because you like David Bowie because it's not and he's not particularly good in it one of the things I think we'll come back to across the episode is why is David Bowie making this film there's a lot of appearances in bad films that he takes and you can sort of see possible motivations and with this i think it was just like get a foot in the door in it just get a credit it's not good he's not good in it but i can understand entirely why he would do it yeah the next thing he does the virgin soldiers no he's not in that is he he is yeah yeah there's a film called the virgin soldiers right david bowie is credited as an extra and I've read a David Bowie quotes where he goes, I'm not in it. I found a clip where he's in it. No. There is. You can I'm see sure him. you weren't watching Just a Jiggle or something. <laughs> he's literally in it for 15 seconds. Right. Um, and it's what's interesting is it's The Virgin Soldiers. Uh, it's from 1969, uh, directed by John Dexter. Um, it's a film about soldiers during the Second World War. Um, and Bowie was desperate to be in the film. So desperate to be in the film, he cut all his hair off and got... A proper squaddy uh, crew cut. Like I've got at the moment. Similar, similar. But unfortunately, when it comes to actual filming, and I think it's probably a, a case of similar to the image, Bowie's not a particularly good actor at this point. So his role is essentially reduced to, there's a bit where the characters are in a bar, um, there's three characters in the foreground talking, and if you look carefully in the background, you see David Bowie getting dragged outside, uh, by someone else. Oh, right. So it's you can't even call it a cameo. I don't think he. I don't know if he's credited in the film, but there there, there is a clip that no, exists he's not, really. where you can clearly see him oh, right. getting no, dragged Bowie by in the background. On that occasion, then. <laughs> Maybe David Bowie doesn't know he's in that film. Hopefully, he's listening and yeah. he can uh, track it down and enjoy. It. Well, we'll we'll put the clip up. Similarly, we had a debate about whether to talk about Piero and Turquoise or the Looking Glass Murders. Yeah, I mean, Bobby was well into clowning, wasn't he? 
Mime. The art of mime. Lindsay the... Kemp, is it? Yeah, yeah. So this kind of dreadful piece of... Uh... But it's hard to sort of call it a film, isn't it? I mean, it's it's a, a piece made for television, I believe. Yeah. Um, it made for Scottish television as well. Literally, STV. Like, the guy who directed it, Brian Marnie, if you look at his IMDb page, the rest of it is, or most of it is, Scottish soap operas. So it's almost, uh, you know, remarkable that it's like Scottish soap operas. Oh, and I did uh, a Piero mime show with David Bowie singing. No. It's a nice thing for him to have, isn't it? But the important thing is that Bowie sings rather than performs. So it almost doesn't belong in this body of work, does it? But it is a performance. He is given a character. He's called Cloud. Uh, he's essentially the chorus of the whole thing, singing the story of Piero as his heartbroken by Columbine. With these three things we've just mentioned, there's not really a great link, is there, to the rest of his filmography? No, they're very much... As I say, at this point, it's it's clearly toes in the water, foot in the door, just get yourself out there and show that you're prepared to do things. He's showing his game. He's cutting his hair off. He's dressing up as a clown. Mm. And uh, quite a lot happens between 1970 and uh, 1975, I suppose, he filmed Man Who Fell to Earth, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a a different David Bowie Mm. in terms of stature. and. It's a surprise, really, it took so long to get into acting, I think, after that. I guess I guess he was just, just knocking busy. out so many records. Well, we he? talked about it and on the, the tour. So doing, much went yeah. into the tours. He's doing an album a year, pretty much. And I suppose point. he was hoping to make a Diamond Dogs film when he The Man Who Fell to Earth comes along, and it's it's a, it's almost hard to believe it wasn't written for him, isn't it? Just such a perfect role for him. Yeah, you sort of finding out that it was a novel beforehand. It does feel particularly because Nick Rogue's on board. It does feel like the sort of thing that Nick Rogue would craft around someone like Bowie. Yeah, Nick Rogue had trouble casting it, he said. He was originally going to cast a six-foot-eight doctor, and um, that didn't really pan out, and he uh, went with Bowie. He'd already worked with Mick Jagger in performance, and he later worked with Art Garfunkel in Bad Timing, so he'd kind of used to working with non-actors slash rock stars. But performers and people that you know you can get something out of. Yeah, but there's a big difference between, uh, you know, strutting around on a stage singing Jumping Jack Flash and (laughs) playing a reclusive... uh, But what's nice about this particular role, as you say, is it not only taps into Bowie generally as a character in terms of the otherworldliness and whatnot, but specifically at this time, you know, we're talking post-Ziggy Stardust. The Mm. whole idea of Bowie as the alien is already established. Yeah, well established, yeah. And he took uh, a lot of the man who fell to earth with him. I mean, he rem- he's very affectionate about the film. R- you know, rightly so, because it's really good. But uh, he literally took the wardrobe with him after he uh, finished filming. Like, two record covers, Low and Station to Station, are taken from images from the film. Um, he you know, put, a, put on a stone for the film. <laughs> And he's, that is uh, like a rake. Yeah, yeah. And he, he's like a stone heavier than... Well, it's important to remember when looking at the film and his performance in the film, this is made pretty much at the height of his cocaine addiction. Yeah. Um, Nick Rogue saw him in the Alan Yentob BBC documentary Cracked Actor, which is great. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to give Alan Yentob too much credit because there's a couple <laughs> of things he does in it that... I mean, I've the only other Alan Yentob thing I, I, I know I've seen, that I know that he's done that, I should say. 
is a Scrabble documentary, which was terrible. I don't know how you make a it's, bad Scrabble it's documentary. It's the worst Scrabble documentary I've ever seen. <laughs> and I've seen a few. Yeah, Neil Poir. <laughs> and uh, David Bowie, he's, you know, just going around like the desert in like a limousine, isn't he? Yeah. He's, you know, he's well, talking about why would you have a waxwork museum in the uh, desert? It would all melt. Ha, ha. It's a great complimentary piece to the Man of Felt's mm. work, isn't it? Because it does feel like it can almost be deleted scenes from the film yeah. with this guy just driving around the desert drinking milk and just saying odd things and just looking at the world in wonder and having the world look at him in wonder. So, yeah, Bowie becomes uh, Thomas Newton. Newton, a reference to the scientists who discover gravity. And these sort of references are dotted throughout the film. Bowie plays an alien who is sent from his planet to Earth because they're running out of water. And he uses the advanced technology from his planet to become a billionaire or a millionaire? Billionaire. Yeah, yeah. ridiculously wealthy. Through a series of patents and... Yeah, he, like, he sort of invents Polaroids and stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, it's really, really well done, I think. It's, it's a phenomenal film, isn't it? I mean, it's Nick Rogue, so when we're saying this, there's also these just incredible, odd scenes throughout. Yeah. So Bowie becomes... Bowie's character becomes incredibly wealthy... But at the same time, corrupted by humanity, becomes fascinated by humanity, particularly through the medium of television, and forgets about his family and his mission and his planet, and just ends up watching television and immerse himself in human ideas to an extent that he just becomes broken, doesn't he? Yeah. The government find out about him, uh, take him away to investigate, but they... It's almost like uh, he's ruined by Earth at this point. So there's not really a great deal of interest they get out of him. So they just sort of leave him in a house to rot. Yeah. And is... eventually he... There's a wonderful scene where he's in the house and just one day he just tries the door and realises that it's not locked and no one's looking at him. They've just forgotten about him and just left him there. And he just walks out into the world and we see him at the end... Well, that's about the end. We should get that you go to Amazon and get suffer.com, click the Amazon link and get it because it is brilliant. It, it is, is really, really If you really haven't good. seen The Man Who Fell to Earth, do see it. And all of, all of Nicholas Rogue's Yeah, stuff. not all of it. Um, <laughs> don't can't get the witches. But yeah, Nicholas Rogue, I think, is one of the all-time great directors, I think. I think he's one of the most underrated directors, certainly. Like the sort of post... Orson Welles, John Ford, there's not many directors that have made films in a way that kind of breaks the mould, you know, tell stories visually, have done something completely it's, new. The way he juxtaposes images yeah, is unlike it's, it's anything else. It's pure cinema, isn't it? it it's, yeah, it is. It's, it's using, form, yeah. using the images, and as you say, the juxtaposition of images to give you ideas that aren't being said to you by a character or, you know, outlined very, very broadly. Yeah, the plot. Um, Don't Look Now is this kind of bona fide classic, and it? I think Walkabout is also a tremendous piece of work, one of the purest works of cinema that's sort of ever been made. Yeah, Walkabout's one of my favourite of all his films. I think it's just remarkable. It is, and it's like a visual poem. Beautiful. As you say, during filming, Bowie is addicted to cocaine. At this point in his life, in general, he's living on milk and peppers. And he's taken seriously ill uh, through filming. They have to stop filming for a while. It, at the time, it's put down to bad milk. 
<laughs> which seems uh, like a euphemism for mad cocaine use. <laughs> but apparently, there were gold, there was like gold liquid mixed into the milk, and like six separate eyewitnesses said, "Yeah, there was definitely something in the milk that was floating around, something golden." But they had the milk tested after it had been tampered with or some sort of sabotage, and it was fine. But it just, but then you know, this is the mythology of Bowie, isn't it? There's always stories around these things. So yeah, bad one. While he's ill, they try and continue filming. Obviously, you can do scenes with other actors. And in one scene, uh, Candy Clark, who plays uh, love interest in the film, plays Thomas Newton. Uh, she just has uh, a large black hat pulled down over her face and uh, appears as in walking across a uh, shot. There's much more to come, Steve. You know, 35 years worth of films. But it does feel like he peaks early, doesn't it? Yeah, the dip is almost instantaneous, isn't it? Yeah, uh, Just a Gigolo is next. 1978. Bowie as a soldier returning from war, coming home to Berlin and finding no place for himself in a post-war world. So he becomes a gigolo at a bar in Berlin. Yeah, and uh, 20s, isn't it? Yeah, sorry, yeah. First World War, yeah. It's... Uh, it starts off, right, in sepia. Yeah. And it looks incredible, because I thought it was... Uh, for some reason, I thought the film was going to be in black and white. And I was like, oh, look, the whole thing's in sepia. This is amazing. And uh, Bowie, does he get injured at war or something? Yeah, yeah. And then after... Then he, the cuts to, like, the 20s in colour, and he's holding a pig under his arm in town. And I was I, like, this is going to be great. That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, I was the same. I was like, with the sepia thing... Um, they sort of do some tricksy stuff with the the film, don't they? It sort of sped up and turns a bit farcical, and I was like, I'm a bit nervy at this Concerned. point. Concerned, <laughs> but uh, I was like, is it going to be silly? And then he's got a pig, and I was like, oh, maybe it's going to be silly, but this, is, this could be interesting. And then it's just bad, isn't it? Yeah, really, it's not good at all. really bad. Um, Kim Novak's in it. Uh, Marlena Dietrich. It's her yeah, last her film. last ever performance, yeah. and she's sort of acts opposite David Bowie but they were not even in the same country as it was being filmed no it's interesting um, the film is set in Berlin filmed in Berlin financed by a German film company but Marlene Dietrich was living in Paris so all, all her scenes were shot in Paris even though she was born in Berlin it's very odd like, if anyone's going to be in Berlin surely it's Marlene Dietrich but she's uh no, that, you know, technically, that's well done. But apart from that... Throughout, I've tried to work out why David Bowie has picked these films. Yeah. I don't, I'm, not, I don't have a, I'm sure you've got theories for every each one, Steve. In this case, <laughs> like, Bowie's well into Berlin, isn't he? Absolutely. Like, he's and all also, about Berlin. So the fact that he's like, yeah. this Berlin-based film comes up. And like, imagine not a lot of Berlin-based films are coming up. And again, you know, as you say, for every film I've sort of looked and you go... You get to be in a film with Marlene Dietrich, who is yeah. an iconic screen. Yeah, one of the all-time presence. greats. So, yeah. you know, you can definitely... It's not a good film, but you can definitely understand why David Bowie is in this film. He looks back on it with uh, a realistic eye. He described it as uh, all 32 Elvis movies rolled into one. Yeah. So he's, you know, aware of its flaws. But again, I don't think he regrets doing it because, as you say, he got, he got a chance to... Uh, mess about in and that's something as well there is a sense of fun to the film isn't there so you can imagine him enjoying the the film being made if not necessarily the product that came out at the end of it 
doesn't do another film for a couple of years, and even then it's only a cameo. Uh, plays himself in Christian F., which is a film also set in Berlin. Set about 10 years earlier, came out in 81. And it's about... it Based on a famous memoir, kind of, I suppose, one of the first of its type, really. Not a misery memoir, necessarily. But about a girl, and written by a girl who, going by the name Christian F., who was former, you know, a kind of teen prostitute, heroin addict, lived in the train station. Uh, What's it called? The Banhof Zoo. Yeah. Um, and it was a massive hit. The book, you know, got kind of an eye opener about the kind of Berlin drug scene of the sixties, seventies, and this just Bowie's all over the soundtrack, and he plays himself in a scene where they go and see David Bowie. Yeah, the centerpiece is they go to see Bowie in concert in Berlin. That's quite good, but it is, it's, it's, he's not heavily involved. But again, as you say, it's interesting. Bowie loves Berlin, fascinated by Berlin. But the scenes uh, where he appears in the film are shot in New York. Because he was appearing in Broadway at the time. And I didn't that. the concert uh. scenes that they use, when you see shots of the crowd, it's an ACD concert. ACDC? From, sorry, ACDC concert in Berlin. So the crowd shots are in Berlin, but it's ACDC on stage. And the Bowie scenes are shot in New York, away from the rest of the film. So again, it's... CBGBs or something. One of uh, Bowie's other great loves, Steve. Bertolt Brecht. Had he covered some of his stuff previously? I say covered. I've often... (laughs) I've used the word covered wrongly, apparently. (laughs) Um, I don't... He... Brecht is obviously um, an influence on him. Particularly... Albums like um, Hunky Dory, I think there's a couple of uh, lyrical references. But yeah, he's a huge fan of his work. So he gets a chance to appear in a TV adaptation of Baal, which was Brecht's first play. First uh, performed in 1918. Yeah, plays the title character. Banjo plucking Libertine, isn't he? <laughs> he is. He's a... a Poet troubadour who uh, doesn't really care too much for the uh, insipid morality of the world around him. Yeah, this is the days when they would film a play and put it on the BBC. It is. And uh, going into that, I was a bit sort of concerned it was just going to be quite flat and just the camera pointing around the play, uh, the stage at certain points. But... Um, it, so it is an actual adaptation, isn't it? I mean... Oh, certainly, yeah. They yeah. use the medium of television. There's, like, split screens and various sort of... Yeah, I mean, it is still very um, stagey. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And there are bits, like the opening... And, you know, as I say, I was concerned about that. And then you go to the opening scene, and it's very much... Oh, they're on stage, and they've just put cameras in front of them, and they're catching them talking. But then later on, as I say, when you've got the split screen stuff... It becomes visually quite interesting. It's, you know, it's a decent thing. I'm not a huge... Uh, I don't know a great deal about Brecht, so I don't know how effective it is. But it's directed by Alan Clark. Yeah. Who, you know, has... It's come off scum, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, I'm sure Bert Hull Brecht was enough of a hook to get Bowie mm. in. But the chance to work with Alan yeah, Clark... Yeah, and this is going to be a quality piece of work. Yeah. And yeah, it's quite good, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's is, it is enjoyable, certainly. I like uh, Bowie's uh, Brecht uh, musical numbers. 
Yeah. Is there playing banjo to the screen, you know? Yeah, Brecht wrote like four or five songs into the player. Because the, the yeah, he released are... it as an EP, though. Yeah. Barl EP. Worth getting on uh, stuffandhardcore.com if it hasn't been. Also in 1982, The Snowman came out, which uh, I was going to say anyone of a certain age. I mean, that came out before I was born. But uh, it's I just think such a... It's become so embedded in the idea of Christmas now. We're the book... Walking in the air. Exactly, it's the thing. The, the book was always a huge hit. It's Raymond Briggs, who's you know one of uh, Britain's most popular children's writers of all time, and, and illustrators, of How course. much older is the book, do you know? Uh, I don't know, I don't think uh, too much older. The, the music, uh, the animation, they're just immediately recognisable, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. For, you know, anyone over the age of... Anyone in Britain, it seems, do you know what I mean? As you say, it's sort of a... Yeah, it's directed by Diane Jackson, who apparently specialised in adapting illustrated books but maintaining the visual look of the book into the animation right so rather than taking just the material in terms of the story and the characters she'd make an effort to encourage the artist to use the same sort of line work as the original illustrations which works a treat in this. oh it's marvelous isn't it but people won't i didn't know bowie was in it well He's not, he's in, the not in the original. And, well, the, and the version that people ever see, he's not really in, is he? No. If you no. go on YouTube, you can see... Um, I don't know if, he's, if it's on the DVD or not, but he does an introduction, doesn't he, and yeah. an outro as well. He, um, it was when the snowman was being sold to America. They felt uh, they needed to just preface it with something recognisable. So, oh, because there's no dialogue, is there? That's the thing. Yeah. So, basically, Bowie... And it's a wonderful appearance, isn't it? Bowie... It is, yeah. Uh, the, the, it opens in it's live action as well it's important to point out it's not an animated Bowie at this point it's just an attic and David Bowie walks in um, wearing a sweater and slacks mm. and it's great because when you think Bowie you know in his musical career in particular of course but also in his film career you know even up to this point with The Man Who he just looks extraordinary and obviously we'll talk about other extraordinary looks that he sports later on but this is a very naturalistic look and it's him a jumper and he just starts to talk very wistfully about a snowman that he made. And he pulls out the scarf. And it's just this lovely little moment. And then, then the film starts and you're ready. And it, well, what it brought to, my, to me was uh, the more famous Bowie Christmas clip, which is, of Peace course, on Earth. him and Bing doing Peace on Earth, Little Drummer Boy. But it's nice. And this is going to sound like a... No, it's not going to sound like criticism. It's almost like at this point Bowie's become Bing. He's in the jumper. Do you know what I mean? He's, yeah. he's, the, he's a, a mature man in a jumper looking back on when he was young. And he's not an old man by any stretch of imagination. Point. But he's, as I say, sort of gone into the mainstream at this point. His next couple of films are quite a contrast. Yeah. Not for children. Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, again, Christmas themed. But, you know, don't sit the family rounds <laughs> thinking that, you know, yeah. we'll just oh, cut the turkey. Japanese soldier stabbed himself in the stomach. <laughs> um, it's a remarkable film, though. Yeah. It yeah. is. I mean, the, the uh, POW film is a strong genre, isn't it? It is. But it's interesting because when you hear, just to uh, give a quick overview, Mary Lawrence is set in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Uh, we meet various Japanese soldiers that are 
hold it in charge of Takeshi beat Takeshi beat Katana Takeshi in a, yeah very one of his, uh, earliest roles um, and an array of and the guy who made did the music whose name I don't know uh, he's like the other lead Ryuchi actor, uh, Sakamoto who uh, yeah is it's an interesting choice I mean it you've is, got yeah. as two of the leads you've got two men who are essentially brilliant musicians and he does the music for this film Sakamoto yeah the music is great isn't it phenomenal it so so good but um, yeah, I thought it was interesting to watch a prisoner, a film set in a prisoner of war camp that isn't about trying to escape from a prisoner of war camp. Yeah, that's not even it's quite, come into it. No, it? never no. addressed. So it's quite interesting, just this examination of what war does to these people. It's a Japanese film. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it's in Japanese. It's in Japanese and English. Tom Conti is uh, the other... Well, he's the lead. He's the lead. The, uh... He's the lead. But David Bowie is very much a supporting actor in this film. But it's a brilliant role. It's yeah. a, a really key role and a fantastic performance. It's, it's certainly his best performance since. The Man's he hasn't had much to get his teeth into before that, but he does do... Yeah, uh, it's a meaty role, isn't it? It is, absolutely, yeah. Um, the director had seen David Bowie appearing on Broadway in The Elephant Man, which is possibly the Broadway appearance he was making during the filming of uh, Christian F. Um, yeah, he, that was in 1980 he was doing uh, Elephant Man, so it might have been... Have you seen clips of him in The Elephant Man? No, I haven't. Yeah, there's some... On YouTube, oh, he's talking right. Elephant Man, David Bowie, and he's got no makeup on. Right. He's just like a slim... And he, he's doing the voice. He's like, you know, talking about his face and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's... But no makeup or... Yeah, it looks yeah. like it really works. I, mean, I don't really like theatre, so I can't imagine I would have got much out of it. Especially when there was a great Elephant Man film coming around the corner. But <laughs> I don't need to see this. Uh... But no, certainly Bowie's good in it. From yeah, the, the, you know, from the few minutes. The director saw him in the Elephant Man and said that he saw immediately that Bowie had an inner spirit that was indestructible, and that was his reason for casting him in the film. And you know, the scenes that he's involved in, I think, without going into too much detail, but the firing squad scene. Is yeah brilliant. It is just yeah, the so film well. Is so intense, yeah. Isn't it? Oh, and the fact that it is a Japanese film as well is important. I think it brings with it the kind of Japanese sensibility, which is just so different from not only British sensibility but from anyone else's in the world. Yeah, absolutely. But well, Bowie said working with the director was unlike anything he'd seen up to that point. He was one of the things that threw him was uh, the director uh, Nagasa Ashima built the entire camp to film in but they only really used like a couple of corners and Bowie just thought this is why would you build this whole thing and waste this money and time to build this but he said then when he saw the film he was like you feel yeah, that the camp, the is, there. The camp is there and it was that, important yeah. for that so it was like it was like a, you know fascinating for him to sort of go this is why you do this so you, you know if you can do things with sets and sound stages but for this, it needed to be immersive. It needed to feel that everything was around you. Ryuchi Sakamoto, uh, the Japanese musician who plays a key role in the film, didn't enjoy it. He fainted the first time he saw the film because he couldn't believe how bad he was. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine that because he can't speak. He doesn't speak clearly, does he? No, he struggles, um, which is great because the character That's the is thing, not going to speak through yeah. in English. Yeah. It's just you know, it's nineteen forty-three or whatever. Yeah. He would have learned enough English to be around the prisoners. Tom Conti as well um, didn't speak Japanese. 
the, just did it phonetically. Yeah, I just learned the lines phonetically. But it's yeah, he's fine, isn't he? Yeah. He's a interpre- interpreter. Is, Do you I, know what I mean? These I don't are... speak Japanese, so we could be saying anything. Mm. It's fine. So so far, Steve, he's done that uh, RT film, presumably <laughs> in London. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the one in Scotland. Yeah. Man Who Fell to Earth, Nick Rogue, English from London. Yeah. Just a Gigolo, Germany. Christian F in Germany. The Snowman is British, isn't it? Bar, British. Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, Japanese. About to do another film with uh, an English director, Tony Scott, before he goes on to do Top Gun. And uh, Tony Scott does Top Gun, not David Bowie. Just <laughs> <laughs> Beverly Hills Cop 2. You know, massive mega hits. Yeah. It'll go, Ridley Scott's brother will go on to do mega hits forever. I saw an interview with Bowie where he's saying that he avoided, throughout his career, he's avoided Hollywood at all costs. And it hadn't really occurred to me until he said that. Because even when we talk about uh, the ho- the um, Hollywood stuff, like, you might think of The Hunger, but that's an English director. Yeah. Um, or, you know, much later on, um, say, The Prestige, again, is an English director. Or, you know, there's other films you're like, oh, what about that? Oh, no, that's, Cana- like, that's Man Canadian. Man Earth is set in the States. First British film shot in America, apparently. Oh, really? Financed by British money, mm, yeah. Wow. I mean, he does, you know, he works with Scorsese, it's coming up soon. Yeah. But yeah. avoided uh, Hollywood. But The Hunger is, uh, you would have thought it was a Hollywood film. It's glossy, isn't it? Mm. It's very sort of slick and sleek. Yeah, that's Tony Scott all over, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much so, yeah. It's, um... It's known as the kind of lesbian vampire film, isn't it? <laughs> it is, is known as that, of, yeah. It's been a while since I watched it. Yeah, David Bowie plays a vampire who has been promised eternal life by his vampire wife. But he realises, as he starts to one day age rapidly, that while he may have eternal life, he won't have eternal youth. So he hunts down an expert on ageing and attempts to use her scientific know-how to regain his lost youth. I think it's artistically more ambitious than uh, most of Tony Scott's work. Yeah, and it most did, Hollywood vampire films. It's lit in a particular way throughout, you know, very dark, very shadowy. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff trying to tell a story of images, like we were saying about Nick Rogue, trying to actually attempt some cinema rather than just, like, hacking out a, you know, dialogue and action film. And I think the Bowie aging stuff is all really good. I, kind yeah. of, I, I mean, visually, that that's the most really, striking. Really yeah, it is striking, And it's, isn't it? it's done very well in terms of... There's a scene, the most rapid bit is the scene where he's waiting in the hospital to speak to this expert on, on ageing. And it just cuts to just scenes in the hospital and then back to him. And he's got... He's a little more old, a little more... And then yeah. finally, by the end, he's just like a, a wrinkled mess. And his voice has gone as well. But I don't I didn't think it was a very good film. It's not, no. It's, Thanks uh, for confirming that. <laughs> it's um it's glossy but insubstantial, isn't it? It's got um a nice opening scene with uh Bauhaus performing. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, really yeah. good. And uh as I say, it sort of sets it up for being a different film to what I expected after that and uh not as much fun. Bowie's good in it. Yeah, it's fine. His yeah. voice, uh, to get the gravelly effect of the older voice, apparently he would, before shooting um, in the early hours of the morning, go out onto the George Washington Bridge and scream punk songs into mm. the air just to uh, wreck his voice enough 
so that he could uh, gravel his way through the scenes. Right. He also learned to play the cello for the film, which for for a lot of actors you go, oh, it's good. It's David Bowie, but he didn't know the cello yeah. already. Peter play everything. Dad was his music teacher. Come on. <laughs> Have you seen Into the Night or just the Bowie scenes? I watch just the Bowie scenes. Yeah, me too. He uh, he puts a gun in Jeff Goldblum's mouth. He does, and then he has a fight scene. Yeah, for about ten minutes, isn't it? Yeah, that didn't really look like it was worth watching anymore. That was interesting because it's John Landis, and again, you can oh. see the appeal of working with John Landis. Yeah, it's not a great, and it is quite a Is fun this role. before he uh, caused the death of that stuntman? Just after. Right. It's the next film he does after that, actually. So. Um, and it's 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 a funny sort of film in that it's a film made of cameos. Essentially, the the most interesting thing about it is there are about fifteen to twenty other famous directors that turn up across the film. John Landis does that all the time. Yeah, Frank Oz turns Landis, up in all yeah. his films. John Landis appears as in most of his films. See you next Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. As you say, um, Bowie plays a hitman uh, called Colin Morris. Quite a nice name for an Englishman. And he's quite good now. It's a very small part. But uh, there's a great scene where he's confronting Jeff Goldblum. And the whole the premise of the film is that Jeff Goldblum gets dragged into this situation and through a series of misunderstanding accidents inadvertently avoids various assassins and government operatives. And there's a great scene where Bowie sort of meets him for the first time and sort of goes, got a lot of admiration for you. A lot <laughs> of, you know, I've been watching your work. And, and Jeff Goldblum is sort of saying, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, but as you say, he ends up sticking... Uh, a gun in Jeff Goldblum's mouth. The most striking thing possibly about Bowie in the film is uh, the moustache that he sports. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh But it, it's a sort of... It's a look that works. I have been generous up until now. But I can be cruel. When you say David Bowie on film to people of a certain age, Steve? Well, there's... I think there's... Uh, I know what you're going for. And I think there's two things. I think for... Older people, it's the man who fell to earth. But I think that you're right, there's a line at some point, people who were born around 75 to 80, and you say David Bowie on film, and they don't think of the man who fell to earth. They don't, they're never going to think of Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. <laughs> they're going straight to Labyrinth. Labyrinth. Labyrinth, come in. 1986, directed by Jim Henson. David Bowie plays Jareth, the Goblin King. A role that is. You know, it's, it, it, for a lot of people, it's iconic as Ziggy yeah. Stardust. This is you. It, it, you say when you say David Bowie, you say David Bowie, and they go, "Oh yeah, the guy in Labyrinth." Yeah, mid-80s. they don't. They have no idea yeah. he's done albums. He's just like this weird-looking guy uh, in an outstanding wig and very, very tight trousers. Bowie hashtag Bowie bulge. <laughs> Who was that? Who was that? <laughs> I don't know. Who was that? I can't remember. <laughs> Labyrinth is the story of Sarah. A young girl who's left alone with her baby brother in the house and he won't stop crying. So Sarah loses her patience and wishes that the Goblin King would take her brother away. So he does. And she finds out that the only way she can get her brother back is to negotiate a labyrinth to the palace of the Goblin King and claim her brother right before uh, uh, a certain time. She does this, meeting various creatures and characters along the way, and eventually confronts a Goblin King and manages to get 
her brother back. It's not a spoiler. No, like, what's going to happen? Yeah, You're not going to kill a baby, are you, in a, in a yeah, kids' yeah. film directed by Jim Henson? Um, do you enjoy it? People love it, don't they, Steve? They do right? love it. But I don't say this lightly, and and I'm not just standing for effect, but Labyrinth is one of the worst films ever made. Like, genuinely. Like, you know, I think you've said to me, you came back from, what was the film you said was one of the worst films ever made? Seven, seven Psychopaths. It's bad. Not even close to Labyrinth. Lab, it's atrocious. La- Labyrinth's much better than Seven Psychopaths. It's... The, uh, Jennifer Connolly uh, going through this maze, flipping paving slabs over, just completely at random, riddle, move on to the next one, riddle, move on to the next one. Uh, and then it just cut to David Bowie in this ridiculous costume. The haircut is ridiculous. Just a load of puppets around. Doing the worst music of his career, by far. Just at, It's unlistenable, isn't it, the soundtrack? You don't like Magic Dance? Uh, it's all just, it's so bad. Um, you know, Roger Ebert, I thought he put it perfectly, he said it's set in an arbitrary world. You know, it's just, what is the point? Can I just, I didn't want to cut across you mid-rant, but I feel there's something I need to tell people, and it's such a shame it's a podcast at this point. There's a vein in Jack's neck. <laughs> and I've, nev- I've never seen this before. I've never seen this before. Are you being before. serious? There's like, some sort of rage vein that I've, I've just never, there's one on the other side as well, this is terrifying. I don't know if we can continue, I don't know if it's safe uh... to go on. Originally, Terry Jones, did he write the script? Or he Terry wrote the Jones, yeah, wrote, wrote the screenplay, yeah. You don't see the middle of the labyrinth till the end of the film. Like, it seems like there was sort of some kind of storyline, like some kind of structure, rather than just walk along, you know, talk to these puppets, walk along a bit more. David Bowie does a dance, and as I said, some appalling music. A baby sits there bemused at the whole thing. It's just, a, it is absolutely abysmal. And there's a big... There's been a big movement in the last decade or so. People who were kids in the 80s, like myself, and uh, are now old enough to, you know, make their opinions known, just building up these appalling 80s Hollywood films as being, like, genuinely good films. Like The Goonies is another one. I, I didn't see The Goonies till I was about 25. And it is, it's awful. Like, it's just a load... It's rubbish, isn't it? Even the stuff that's quite good. So, like, um, you know... Princess Bride's another one. It's not good, is it? Like, people talk isn't as if it, it's... not it good? Nah. No? No, 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 watch it, Steve. Back to the Future? I liked Back to the Future, but... That is good. I saw Back to the Future is good. I saw that one as a kid, so that right, might okay. be, you know... You know, I didn't see a lot of films as a kid, right? I remember yeah. when I was at school, people were mocking me because I hadn't seen Terminator 2. Or Terminator. I mean, it's a kind of combination of being raised in an evangelical household where we didn't really watch 12s or whatever, or 15s and 18s, obviously... And also, we didn't have a lot of money, so you just had to watch uh, what you had on tape and stuff. But like things like Rambo, American Wealth in London, Indiana Jones, Star Wars, Predator, you know, all those slasher films, Halloween and stuff. I know that's 70s. Are you Um, piling all these together under the banner of Under the banner of stuff, yeah, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is quite good. But it's not, it's not like, it doesn't hold up compared to actual good films. Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, that's not all right, isn't it? It's all Star right. Wars is... Yeah, I mean, it's it's all right at best. Not a fan, Steve, of any of these. <laughs> yeah, I remember... Um, Initially a box office flop I've got in my notes, Steve. It, Why yeah, couldn't you true. just leave it that way? <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those ones that people were buying the power on DVD. Of, the power of, well, home video. This was, yeah. Yeah, so I was just thinking when I was working at no, the Megastore. Ab- absolutely, but yeah, this was, you're absolutely right. At the cinema, it didn't do uh, particularly well. But it went on to become this phenomenal hit on on video, where and it would be the sort of thing that would be passed around, and yeah, and has grown now, and it is. There's a huge, not even Bowie's hands, is it, when he's doing that orb stuff? No, it's uh, a choreographer 
who's on the crew, uh, and he has to do it. He puts his arms through Bowie's, uh, where Bowie's arms would be, from behind. So he's doing it blind. Yeah. And apparently they got through like tons of those balls. He's just dropping them all. Because <laughs> he's doing it blind. It's, it's good considering what he's doing, but he's doing it blind, so he is going to drop it. Do you think the director was doing his job blind too? Wait. When you say the director... Who is it? Frank Oz? Jim, Jim Henson. Oh, yeah, Jim Henson. Sorry. Also, yeah. Uh, you know... Yeah, he's a puppeteer, isn't he? He's not a film director. <laughs> rest, is, rest in peace. Yeah, it was his final film, so... Uh... Yeah, I was watching a making of documentary, and like... George Lucas is sitting there talking about the film as if it should be like sort of revered and sort of analysed in any kind of way. Well, the people who are involved, I mean, you've got Jim Henson directing, George Lucas producing. The visual effects and design is overseen by uh, Brian Froud, who's uh, did Dark Crystal with Jim Henson as well. And he's very well respected. I remember we had Dark Crystal on video and like, I don't remember seeing it. I just remember that in our house we hated it and never watched it. <laughs> um. Some some interesting production uh, points. The baby, Sarah's brother, who is abducted by Jareth, is called Toby. Because, in real life, the baby is called Toby and would only respond to his own name. Which seems fair. When the baby's on Bowie's lap, to get him to look in a certain direction, um, a member of the crew has a sooty puppet off screen, uh, just waving. Which seems odd, because... Fair enough, I'd understand if it was like a domestic drama. Get a sooty puppet off screen <laughs> and use that to distract the kid because obviously you're in a kitchen or whatever. But if you're in a Goblin King's throne yeah, room and sooty. you're surrounded by Muppets, yeah. surely sooty's just sort of like, that's the blandest thing in the room. Little yellow puppet. But apparently it works. This this little fella's fascinated by sooty. You have a, I can't see on your nose bad underlined, Steve. No, because uh, <laughs> I, I quite like labyrinths. Oh, um, I think in terms, you know, looking at... All right, why do you think David Bowie did this film? Well... Going to our uh, go-to questions to why... Yeah, I left, I've left my notes at home, right? But I wrote down a quote from Bowie, which was actually from 83. But he was talking about um, having Zoe Bowie and it changing his perspective on a lot of things. But you always get this where suddenly... These, you know, the worst case directors and then, you know, sometimes actors and stuff suddenly start doing the odd kids film or, you know, they do voiceover work because they've got kids. Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Eddie Murphy. I don't know where it kind of coincides with him having kids, but at some point they think, oh, my kid can't uh, watch me smashing someone's face in in a film, like an action star. I can't let my kids watch Beverly Hills Cop. I better do a voice I think if you're given the chance to go to Jim Henson and be surrounded by Muppets... Then you definitely do it. Yeah, Terry Jones wrote it as well. He's yeah. probably a massive Python fan, isn't he? Also, I say probably. I'm not. You look him. at the role. He's dressed up as a Godling King. I mean, the wig is outstanding. The costume is phenomenal. Yeah, he'd be all over that. Yeah, yeah. The singing, not too the singing and dancing. Yeah. I mean, he would have got paid fun? as well. That was he would have got a big paid. But I mean, he's he, he's got money. He does very well. Yeah, but never but, underestimate people. No, no. Uh, well, I'm well, saying that. I'm not saying yeah. Bowie's a money. If you look at what he's done before and after, he's not chasing the cash with his film choices, is he? He's yeah. clearly looking to be having a good time. And I think with this, he would have had a good time. I think you know. Um, I, I I take it's not his best stuff musically, but uh, no, it's, it's a lot. Worse. It's a lot of fun. Is it? Yeah, I think so. Magic dance. No, okay. No, I hate. I'm it, not. Man. The last thing I try and do is is convert. Like you say to, to people like, like oh, what shows come out? Uh, Bowie on film like labyrinth, like rub their hands together. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah, labyrinth. Um, interesting background casting. 
Who else was in the running for Jareth the Goblin King? Uh, there's a clue still. Michael Jackson. That's a clue, isn't it? Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of the film Captain EO. Have you ever yeah. seen that? Similar sort of thing. But not as it? good. Captain EO is quite good. <laughs> oh, Captain EO is terrible. Come uh, on, man. The t-shirt he wears, it changes colour. Who else was up for... And think about uh, similar musicians. Not similar musicians. Peter Gabriel. No. Um, Paul McCartney. <laughs> I'm just going to say Sting, because otherwise you're going to keep guessing. I think Sting would have been quite good. Sting would have been, yeah, would have been good casting, yeah. yeah. Who else auditioned for the role of Sarah? Do you know? Uh, go on. Helena Bonham Carter. Right. Marissa Tommy. And I could see mind, Tim Burton remaking Labyrinth for some point. Then she'll, then she'll get a <laughs> he, chance, will she? He kind of has half a dozen oh, times already, I wonder who will he? possibly play the uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, it's 1986 as well. So when I say these names, don't be thinking of them in the 90s and now, as you probably mm. would naturally. Helena Bonham Carter, Marissa Tomei, well, the thing Sheedy. is, they were kids at the time. Absolutely, they, yeah. yeah. Look, but it's remarkable that, you know, these kids all turned out for audition, went on to have... No, but you often find it with these things. I mean, I'll, you can get back to your list in a second, Steve. I would, because <laughs> I've got a crack in my <laughs> But it's always like, yeah, we, uh, you know, whenever any kid star, you know, we, we looked, we in, uh, auditioned 500 people for this <laughs> yes, role. Yes, yeah. Oh, Millhouse. Well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Ali Sheedy, Laura Dern, Sarah Jessica Parker, Jane Krakowski. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, now now we want to hear about Labyrinth, <laughs> don't we? Um, some listeners... She's made... a player in the remake. It's like the new Doctor Who, isn't it? You know, people... I'm always saying... I'm always not making jokes, but making, like, snide comments about it being a kid's show, which I think it is. Yeah. But when people insist it works for adults as well, no, you're just enjoying something very lowbrow. That's what you need to face sometimes. The Simpsons, that works on lots of different levels. <laughs> Adventure Time works on different levels. <laughs> Dots Who, children's show. <laughs> Labyrinth, children's show. There's a difference, Stephen. There? there is a difference. And I think uh, you've used a series of tables and graphs. <laughs> and two massive veins on his neck. Slash graphs. <laughs> Just fear me. Love me. Do as I say and I will be your slave. Getting quite into films at this point, of Bowie, isn't he? Where, the, where his musical career is taking a... Diving quality. <laughs> yeah, he's making exceptional things like Labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> but he goes, does Absolute Beginners, comes out the same year. Absolute Beginners is an adaptation of a novel from, was it 1959? Yeah. yeah. Um, about, it's kind of all, I haven't read the novel, but the film is all kind of all encompassing about 50s culture at the time. Yeah. Soho, uh, the Notting Hill race riots come up. And... It's essentially about the emergence of rock and roll, isn't it? Like the very yeah, early um, rock it, and roll. It articulates in the film at the beginning about it being the birth of the teenager. Yeah. Um, the film was proclaimed to be... It's almost like, you know, the British are coming with uh, Chariots of Fire, isn't it? And yeah. It's like, this yeah. is going to blow up and the British film industry is going to have massive effects from it. But then, it's, obviously, people work in massive hyperbole. In, uh... <laughs> Too massive, that hyperbole. <laughs> by, by one syllable. Hyperbole, even. Um, and yeah, it killed the British film industry apparently instead. We've talked about this before, haven't we? About how British films are seen as this magical thing in a way that. What, in terms of quality? People yeah. give it an extra star sometimes. But, but, uh, that as well, but also, yeah, there's this idea that the British film industry, as you say, should be blindly supported. Yeah, we, but saying that, to... I mean, I'm only coming at this 30 years after the event. It was the first time I saw it, it was the other day. 
Um, but if you if you read up on it, reviews were not positive at the time, were they? No. And uh, people don't necessarily... It's kind of forgotten more than anything. I it think. wasn't what I expected at all. In terms of the film, it's very sort of bold and brash. It's a colourful portrayal of the time, almost cartoonish. Um, it's very similar to... Moulin Rouge, yeah, that yeah, kind of thing where yeah. you kind of massively stylize it. You know, there's a, it's like West Side Story at points. There's people, there's like roly poly fight scenes. But that's the thing; it seemed to me more like West Side Story than anything about London. I mean, referencing Soho, and they're talking about. Hey, look, is it shot in Soho? Or is that a film stage? The, because there's a bit where it's, there's like the Bar bit with Italia. Yeah, there's, the well, there's a bit as well with a pub that just looks like. Uh, yeah, I mean, everything is like if it's if it is um, a soundstage. It's Soho recreated, yeah, absolutely, but just yeah. with much more neon. Well, there's a bit at the start where he's basically dancing through Soho, and you can sort of trace. As you say, yeah. it's not a soundstage. Like certainly, there's a sign. Yeah. No, no, Greek Street, right? There's a sign up. It says Greek Street. Like, obviously, large parts of it are on Old Compton Street. Yeah, very Americanized. Though. That was my, what I took from it. Yeah, it's like Manhattan. Like the clothes, the cars, yeah, the, clothes, the, the neon lighting, yeah. particularly. I mean, it's clearly not. It feels much more like. New York in the 50s than London in the 50s. I, I was in neither of those places in the 50s. But Where, where were you? <laughs> um, what was I like in the 50s? <laughs> but, I mean, you can understand... It's stylistic, Absolutely. It? And, like, the point that is made early on in the film is it's, you know, you're at a time when rationing and... You know, there's a you know limited amount of of things. So, sort of show it as this magical explosion where music made the world literally a brighter, brasher place. Yeah, and uh, drag queens and jazz bars and stuff. David Bowie plays an um, ad man called Vendice Partners. Because oh, this course... is just when Mad Men's kicking off, isn't it? If you kind of think about it, at the yeah, same it's time, true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Your first season of Mad Men's like this, a year later, isn't it? Yeah. He does a ridiculous voice. Luckily, he's just putting it on. Even though, regardless, it's quite bad, isn't it? Yeah. And he's only he's a, a very sort of small part. Yeah, a couple of scenes, isn't it? Yeah, scene. But it gets to scene, so that's nice. And at, at that point... It, uh, as oh, you he say, does that musical number on, yeah, on the type a massive typewriter when yeah. it does get completely uh, fantastical. Also, you know, it never occurred to me watching it, but as soon as you said Moulin Rouge, the whole feel of it is very Baz Luhrmann, isn't it? It's very mm. sort of overblown and exaggerated, but... It's you know, done. The photography and the production design are both are great. Implies that I like it. That's the thing, isn't it? It's I, I, I really wanted to like it. I wanted to have affection for it, but I couldn't. I did. I thought the central performances were very flat. Yeah, the guy um, who plays—is it Colin or is yeah. his real name? He goes on to do nothing else. Basically, he does six TV appearances over the course of about twenty-five years. Oddly. And like the romantic lead is Patsy Kensit, who is a mm. lot of things, but is not. A particularly no, it's semi star studded, isn't it? That's the thing. It's it's uh, similar to uh, it's like made of cameos, isn't it? You're sort of hanging on for the next person to go. Oh, they're they're in it as well, you know. But mm. as a piece, it's just not. No, I mean, I it. really liked Moulin Rouge when it came out. I thought it was incredible, and the same with Romeo and Juliet as well. Baz Luhrmann, both of them, I was like overwhelmed. I thought it was amazing. Partly because, as I was alluding to earlier, I didn't watch a lot of films uh, before about 1999, when I was uh, 16. Like, I hadn't seen much. So Technicolor maybe... must have blown you away. <laughs> <laughs> so, I imagine if I watch Moulin Rouge now, I might not be quite as taken with it, because I've seen yeah. people sort of tear it to pieces. But even if you don't like those films, I think you'd have to say that Moulin Rouge does work. Yeah, and you can admire 
you know, it's a similar point to what I was making about Labyrinth. You could admire production design. You can imagine mm. the craft. You can maybe it's a bit like Great Gatsby, where basically everyone said this doesn't work. Yeah, um, but I don't. I'm not quite sure with Absolutely Beginners why it doesn't work. I just think it's so. It's such an odd blend of all these things. Like, you know, the whole thing of Soho being exaggerated, you couldn't sort of accept. But when when they go home, they're like, ah, back to Napoli, and you're like, there's no part of London. That is yeah, called always ever called that. that. Yeah, That's yeah. the thing. So at that point, you're like, so it's not really London. It's yeah, almost just this, so artificial, it's isn't it? I suppose if you're going to do something that's so artificial, you need something real to anchor it. Yeah. And I, I don't know, in Moulin Rouge, maybe the kind of, or maybe the, perform- the performances are strong, aren't they? But as I say, the, the, the sort of Americanisation of everything, like the scene at the start when he's, he's getting dressed and he's going around his room and his room, it's all sort of, fridges and whatnot he's keeping his clothes in and mm. but they're all clearly american yeah fridges. and just like as i say i was like so this is kind of uh, you know and i can you can sort of understand the reasoning behind that where it is there's a, an invasion of american culture with you know teen rebel films and rock mm. and roll music that is going to transform the british cultural landscape but you sort of look again it's already transformed this it seems like it and it was never that pervasive so yeah. I don't know it's... and there when you start trying to tackle like the national front I don't that's... know if that's the reincarnation at that yeah, point but you know yeah. racism and race riots and stuff that's the you... thing I think it would have been better as you say that you know I think they've someone at some point when this needs to be anchored in something they're like what about race relations no not race relations because you've got this fantastical world and then you're trying to deal with uh, a genuinely important subject so either do something that's accurate and tackle race relations or do something fantastical and just have it being about you know, you know, conflict between generations. That would have been, I think, a better way to go. Mm. For, but I mean, you know, telling uh, Julian Temple to make a film, am I? Yeah, yeah. Directed by Julian Temple, um, we mentioned his documentary from last year, London: The Modern Babylon, which we both uh, would take on Desert Island DVDs potentially. Yeah, it's, we, it's just so good. In the same way as we have some reservations about Absolute Beginners, we have no reservations whatsoever about London. It is flawless. I yeah, it's, it's tremendous. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, is is um, Joe Strummer documentary is yeah. like it's fantastic. With the exception of Bono turning up and doing a quick talking head, it's just one <laughs> of the best music documentaries you'll see. He's the only director to have worked with David Bowie more than once. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't have notes. I did you, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, 1984, Jazzing for Blue Jean, which is a funny, I mean... It, yeah, it's, it's, like, it's the long-form uh, music video, is it? Yeah, it's like Piero and Turquoise. Is it legitimate for us to be talking about this here? I think so, because think it's, so. how long is it, 35 minutes? Now? And also, it is, it's designed for screen. It's probably yeah. on screen. It, it is a music video, and the song is the centrepiece of it. Yeah, it's a short film more than anything else. Yeah, 20 minutes long. David Bowie uh, plays David Bowie, but he also plays... Well, he plays... Oh, um, well, and someone who's unnamed who basically is Bowie, though, isn't it? And he plays... No, he's named. Screaming Lord Byron is the pop star. Oh, right, okay. Bowie plays two roles. He plays Vic, um, a cockney everyman window cleaner, who falls in love with this woman who is fascinated by a, a famous pop star, Screaming Lord Byron. And Vic promises to get her tickets to a show and assures her that he knows Screaming Lord Byron and that he can get her an introduction. So the film then cuts to uh, Vic getting ready to meet her on the night. He gets to the place, makes various attempts to get in, 
manages somehow to break into place, confronts uh, Screaming Lord Bone, who we realise at this point is David Bowie as well. Um, meets the girl. They get into the show. David Bowie then performs the song uh, Blue Jean as Screaming Lord Byron. And then at the end, uh, the pop star approaches Vic and the girl and you realise that the girl has met him before and they go off together and Vic's left heartbroken and bereft. It's a uh, one-joke thing, isn't it? But I, I liked it. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was thought really it was, good. It was funny. You know, with all this, we've watched so many Bowie films here that the novelty of seeing Bowie in a film was gone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, you're watching things, you're like, come on. There's certain things we watch where you just skip into the Bowie bit yeah, and turning yeah. it off. But this was one where it was just like, I don't know, it was a real joy to watch. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, wasn't it? And as, as you say, what's nice about it as well is, you say it's a one-joke thing, but the joke is essentially David Bowie laughing at himself. Mm. You know, when it breaks down at the end. Bowie can't get in the Bowie show. <laughs> but also, when Vic realises what's happening between the pop star and the girl, he uh, starts to just like shout abuse at Screaming Lord Byron as, as he uh, runs off. And one of the things he shouts is, uh, your record covers are better than your songs. <laughs> and it's uh, basically Bowie taking criticism that people have thrown at him mm. across his career and uh, projecting it onto this vision of um, an eccentric pop star that he's created, which is an exaggerated version of himself at certain points. Put that up on the website, won't we? Did you notice um, when he's getting ready in the flat, there's a... Crystal Palace scarf and pennant on the wall. All right, local team, isn't it? I don't know if Bowie's ever yeah, mentioned a football team. He's a team. Palace fan, but if he supports anyone, well, I mean, I mean there's, there's a in the in the flat. There's a Palace scarf and pennant, and there's a Chelsea scarf pinned to the wall oh. as well. And the flatmate is clearly um, a bit of a toff, isn't he? So he's probably the Chelsea fan. Yeah, and you'd imagine Vic would be the Palace fan, but I don't know if that's you know, but Julian Temple. You know, dressing the stage or Bowie sort of going, make sure there's a palace scarf up. I don't imagine him having that great an interest in uh, football. There's a nice bit at the end where, as the pop star and the girl drive off, Vic then starts talking to Julian Temple. He breaks the fourth wall and starts addressing how this video isn't finishing the way it was supposed to finish. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which I thought was great. And it was nice because. Um, you sort of go, oh, right, that's a nice bit. But then Julian Temple uh, starts, answer, starts answering him. And um, they just have, as the, the credits are going, they're sort of talking about, you know, look, it's a long day for the crew. Let's just leave it there. We're not going to do it again. Everyone's, and he's like, we're all had, we've all had a long day. We're all sort of, you know, yeah. It's, um, yeah, a lot of fun. I think Julian Temple turns up in Absolute Beginners as well, dancing. Well, the only person I recognised from... Both films, apart from David Bowie, um, is I think she's called Big Jill in Absolute Beginners, <laughs> and uh, she's like leopard skin uh, character. Turns up in the car in Napoli, and she's brought a girl back home. But she's also um, in charge of the guest list at the show in Jasmine for Blue Jean. That I thought was a really good comic scene where basically Vic blags his way up to the desk and then tries to blag his way through on guest list by reading names off the guest list but as he does it 
the actual people from the guest list turn up to collect mm. the tickets. So he's mispronouncing their names, and then they're coming on going, it's actually this. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I thought it might be, yeah. It, yeah, it, it's, um, yeah, it's a good performance. Yeah, it is, yeah. We talked about our great Nick Rogue is, Steve. But I think you could say there's only one time Bowie's worked with a director who's kind of universally acknowledged as one of the all-time greats. Ben Stiller. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ben Stiller did uh, Zoolander in uh, 2000 and whatever. 2001. No, Martin Scorsese. The Last Temptation of Christ, where, you know, it's the film is so boldly cast that David Bowie as Pontius Pilate doesn't ever <laughs> doesn't get mentioned. Like, like, you know, know, it's like... Um, uh, Carby Cartel's Judas Iscariot just playing him as if he's from Brooklyn you know what was Jesus thinking <laughs> he was a good kid <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah the the casting is, is basically done with the Romans being played by British actors and the Jews being played by American actors it's an odd film I mean there's no doubt in the quality of the cast but all yeah, the way John through. Lurie. I can't remember which disciple he plays. One of the Johns, I think. He's brilliant. Such great casting. John Lurie as a disciple. I just have so much trouble taking the film seriously, though. Yeah. Because it comes across as a long Monty Python sketch, doesn't it? Yeah, it's... Um, it's just, or, or like Stella Street or something. It just feels like... I put this in my notes, right? Have you ever seen the film Failsafe? No. Right. It's uh, Henry Fonda plays the president of the USA. And they accidentally send this... Um, I suppose, a nuclear submarine into Russian waters, but it's too late. They can't recall it, and it's going to blow up Russia. And they're just a whole film, it's like an hour and a half, in, in like a, you know, like a safe room in, you know, the, some government building. And it's really tense. Like, you know, Henry Fonda's like the president. He's trying to negotiate with the Russians, trying to say, look, we can't stop this bomb that's coming. And I can't give away the ending, because this really is a good film. You should see it, fail safe. Um... And, like, really tense, this kind of nuclear drama. And it, they made it, and then just before it came out, Doctor Strangelove came out, which is also, <laughs> like, they're both black and white in yeah, the time yeah. when colour films were being made. And, like, suddenly, like, you know, you can't fight in here, this is the war room and stuff, and, you know, just... it's If you see both of them, you just... You can't. you can't believe the bad luck that they had. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, there's a much bigger gap between The Life of Brian and yeah. The Last Sensation of Christ. But it just, they look the same, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, of course. And one's hilarious, and the other one is... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You know, as you say, John Lurie is very good. Harvey Keitel is a brilliant actor. But I just, you can't take it seriously. No, I think the big problem with it is... I mean, there's no, I don't think we need to go into the details of the plot, really. No. You know, it's about Jesus. People it's kind of an yeah. alternate, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. alternate to the, the Bible. thing that we're talking about, is it? But the problem for me is that Martin Scorsese and what's the guy's name who wrote it because of a K in it? I can never pronounce it. Oh, um, it's like a Greek name, isn't it? Yeah, he is Greek, yeah. <laughs> Kazantzakis. Nikos Kazantzakis. They have an internal spiritual struggle, right? Yeah. And that's what the film is about. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of your internal spiritual struggle, but kind of uh, through Jesus' yeah. own spirit, you know, Jesus being a holy man and holy God. Um, he kind of basically Jesus doesn't get crucified is the storyline and he kind of he uh, 
he kind of his, his last temptation is um, you know women life as and a stuff. Man. Life as a normal man, yeah. Giving up on his holy mission and just climbing down from the cross and living life as a, as a man. Yeah. Yeah, and I think if you if you don't have that internal spiritual struggle that obviously Catholics have, and specifically Martin Scorsese and Kazantzakis, then the film for me, I don't have an internal spiritual struggle. So it, may, it doesn't work. Yeah. If, you, if you're not invested like that, yeah. you know, the, it just becomes, like you say, like Life of Brian, but without the jokes. And even if you're not prepared to read it on the level of internal spiritual struggle, even if you're watching it as a Christian and you're intrigued by, you know, their their take on Christ's life, but I haven't got that either. I'm like, yeah, I guess he could have thought about that when he was on the cross. He probably would have because, you know... You'd consider a lot of things as you were dying. In my notes regarding David Bowie as Pontius Pilate, I've got the words remarkable. Roman sandals. I've got remarkable haircut because it is, but it's odd because it's just a very, at the time, it's a normal Roman haircut, isn't it? But it just looks so unnatural, doesn't it? And you're talking about a man who's had many remarkable haircuts. More remarkable than his uh, labyrinth haircut. Yeah, Bowie, there's not really a lot to say about Bowie's performance, I don't think. He sort of comes in, does his lines and go. No, about Oh, go on. Well, two points, actually. Who else was in the running to play uh, uh, Pontius Pilate? Mick Jagger. Keep going. Charlie Watts. (laughs) (laughs) Don't just test your own. Sting turns up. Oh, right. And you can sort of see at this time how Sting and Bowie would have been sort of. What has Sting been in? Has he been in June? He would have been in at this point. And a few oh, other yeah. things. So Bowie didn't really sort of uh, dodge the bullet, you might say, with June. Yeah, he would, well, he would have got a chance to work with David Lynch. Yeah, who is great, but that's a bad film, isn't it? He also gets a chance to work with David Lynch later on. David Bowie? Oh. Yeah. Well, this is good. This would be interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, around the time that The Last Temptation of Christ was being made, some historical evidence had emerged that Pontius Pilate had been born in Scotland to a Roman centurion <laughs> who was Wait, stationed is, in Scotland. Is this similar to your uh, Joseph Ramaphia uh, factoid? Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah similar. Um, so when David Bowie was cast as Pontius Pilate, Billy Connolly tried to convince him to perform it as a <laughs> Scotsman. <laughs> uh, Bowie refused to do I'll so. Tell you who would be a, been... I'll tell you who'd be a great Pontius Pilate. Peter Capaldi. <laughs> he would be a very good Pontius Pilot. When we decided we were going to do this episode, there were various ideas about what we'd cover, what we wouldn't cover, what we'd emphasise, what we wouldn't emphasise. So we'd agreed on like a core of films that we were certainly going to emphasise. I mean, it's turned into everything now, which I think is the best way to go. But yeah, at one point... Kind of, it's quite bad that we're both completists, really, isn't it? <laughs> we need one of us should be like, nah, skip that. <laughs> You sent me a message at one point going, Linguinius in 1991, watch it. And I was like, because it's really good. <laughs> Maybe it's really good. Yeah. And then I watched it. And uh, I think this might be the first appearance of my uh, capital letter bad since the image. Yeah. Um, it's that bad. I don't think it's that bad. It's... Do you think it's better than Labyrinth? Yeah, certainly, yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's not. It's a lot is, worse than Labyrinth. It's a comedy that is not that funny. That's yeah. the big problem. Big, it's a big problem. That's the it? main problem. <laughs> but luckily, it's got a really good script and the performances uh, make up for that. Oh, and it's well directed. No, no none of these no, things are true. It's a yeah. bad film on every level. Yeah, I've not got a lot to say about it, really. 
I've, I've found a possible reason for Bowie to do it. I mean, just to give an overview, um, it's, again, quite a stylized film. It's quirky. It's zany. It's all yeah, those things. Those are, you are listing problems. Yeah, fair enough. Davy Bowie plays Monty, a barman who works in this, like, as I say, it's like a theme wacky bar, restaurant. Yeah. And, um, and Roseanne Arakat works there, and they decide they're going to um, rob the place, essentially, to cut, to cut you know, as short as possible. When people talk about Wes Anderson, the Coen brothers, and don't like them, I never understand what they're talking no, about because they're good individuals, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, but I can sort. I, I'd imagine this is what they see when they're watching those films. Yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? It's one of those things that we go. Is, yeah, yeah. This is what they're describing. Isn't yeah, it? this is what they're talking about. They go, oh, it's just this and just that. You go, no, it's good. This, this is what you're thinking of, where it is just uh, people saying things that someone's decided in a room yeah, would be funny say, to someone yeah, to say. Just reading scripts to each other. And it's just so, so bad. And I mean, it's not good. Yeah. No. Um, the only, the only thing I could find, I was desperately going through the cast and the crew. and the, Who directed it? Uh, Richard Shepard. So you're not getting anything out of that. Um, the only thing I can think of is that Marley Matlin is in the film and she'd won an Oscar for Children of a Lesser God and he probably thought it'd be interesting to meet her. Just no. ring her up and have dinner. Don't You don't need to, you know, make a terrible film to uh, run Was into broke people. broke at this point or anything? No, definitely not. He's never been broke. No. He's Bowie. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just do an album. Don't you? Don't need to. No, I'll... don't do an album. It's a white noise. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just it's just bad. So, Linguini Innocent is out there. Find a clip on YouTube and watch it. Don't, you know, don't go to don't, South. Don't Un... do that. Don't even do that. But definitely don't go to South Un Hardcore and go to Amazon and try and find it. But don't buy it on DVD. Don't just buy something else. Buy anything else. When we were talking about Last Temptation of Christ, and I mentioned Sting being in June. I said that, you know, by not doing that, David Bowie missed out on a chance to work with David Lynch. But, of course, the same year he does Linguini Instant, he gets a chance to work with David Lynch on Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, which is a feature-length sequel to the television series Twin Peaks. David Bowie turns up as Agent Philip Jeffries. Wait, small... I don't want to know this, Steve, yeah? So do you want me to put my fingers in my ears? Oh, looks like I'm going to have to edit it, aren't I? <laughs> Can we just? Can you not tell me? I know it's kind of selfish to viewers, listeners that really want to what hear. What don't your, you want to know? I just don't want to know any plot details. It's, I can do that. All right, go on. Yeah, then. I'm not getting ready for because basically, can I just quickly tell you? Yeah. Um, when Twin Peaks came out on DVD in uh, 2003, I was working at Virgin Mega Store at the time. Got it on discount. My dad gave me the money to get myself it for Christmas, and. Like, it's a bit odd, isn't it? It's a bit odd. No, but you put it in there, but, I mean, This what? is what people are tuning in for. Your, <laughs> your unique odd, take uh, on uh, Twin Peaks. No, but you know you put Twin Peaks on and the music is like, oh. what is this? Like, uh, at first I was like, this is dreadful, this music. But then it kind of is perfect, isn't it? Yeah, The, the yeah. credit sequence, you're like... But then once it starts, you know, and it's... um, What's his name? Carl McLaughlin talking into a dictaphone. Like, yeah, it's yeah. immediately accessible. It's not some odd, like, no. r- midget and a reverse, you know, reverse <laughs> talking. You know what I mean? It's yeah, very yeah. accessible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought it was great. First season, brilliant. And I watched half of the second season. And basically, Twin Peaks is a kind of murder mystery, but with much more to it than that. Yeah. And a you find out... A physical murder mystery. You find out halfway through the second season who done, who done it. And yeah, who yeah. done it. 
And I, I haven't watched it since. I found yeah. out who done it, and I think I watched two more episodes. And when you find out who done it, it is incredible. I mean, it is just one of the most jaw-dropping bits, one of the most jaw-dropping scenes you'll ever see in anything. Um, again, I'm, I'm spoiling things now, aren't I? Not really. But I've not gone back to it since. And I do intend to watch the rest of season two, but it did feel a bit like, why is this show still going on when you've kind of wrapped it up? And then there's the film, which just kind of gets mixed reviews, but I would like to see it, because well, I, I would watch any... With, with the rest of the series and the film, it explores the sort of things behind the thing. So I'm not, I'm not going to go into details. I'll just say David Bowie turns up very early on for a very short amount of time as an agent called Philip Jeffries, who had disappeared for a while and, and reappears... Um, gives them it's some information. Again. Um, the remarkable thing, and something to watch out for when you listen to it, is his accent. Where uh, Louisiana, I'm not sure, but he's oh, gone. No. Yeah, he goes full, fully for it, and uh, it's not, it's not good, but it's really good if that makes sense. Mm. It's just this remarkable, unnatural thing. So, in Merry Christmas, Lo- Mr. Lawrence, is he Australian? There's a bit of conflict about that because of the hat he wears. He wears like that. And there's a bit with an Australian accent, I'm sure. Was he wear a hat with corks in it or something? Well, no, he wears, um, you know, he's got that sort of hat that's folded up halfway. It's called like a slouch hat, I think. Right. But he wears a, a particular kind of hat that's synonymous with the Australian Armed Forces. But a lot of um, Allied troops wore them as well. And particularly oh, right, right. in a prisoner of war camp, you imagine, uh, just grab a hat and you're not going to be too worried about... Yeah, if you if you're working in a labour camp, you just want something to keep the sun off, don't you? So, but and, and also it looks good. You can imagine uh, as a style choice, Bowie would have been happy with it. But I, I think he is supposed to be British. I was always aware of Bowie as a kid because my dad was a big fan. I remember, uh, my, obviously, it was 1996 um, when Basquiat came out. I didn't even remember the name of the the uh, of the film until a couple of years ago when I kind of stumbled across it. But I remember seeing a clip either at the Elephant Castle in the cinema in a trailer or on telly of David Bowie playing Andy Warhol and then sort of years later going, oh, that's it. Warhol as in holes. Yeah, David Bowie recorded a song called Andy Warhol in on, um, what is it, on Hunky Dory? Yes. And uh, Andy Warhol hated it. Yeah, David Bowie played it to Andy Warhol and at the end... Andy Warhol's response was looking and go, I really like your shoes. <laughs> so he didn't want to address really how like much he shoes. hated the song. Yeah. Um, it's a funny song, isn't it? I mean, as it's great. Holds. I think it's brilliant. But, but it's... what I'm going to say, Steve, is that if, if Andy Warhol didn't like uh, Bowie's song about him, <laughs> like imagine how much he would have hated his portrayal of him in, in Basquiat. Like, and David Bowie plays Andy Warhol as if he has special needs. And it's brilliant. What do you think? Um, I thought uh, the film as a whole was uh, outstanding. Yeah, really so, good. So, so... And I wasn't expecting it to be that good. It was... It's directed by Julian Schnabel. And the the actual visual look of the film, I wasn't expecting it to be striking. It was there's a, a phenomenal scene. Uh, probably my favourite moment in the film. Where Bas- the, oh, go on, you go. Where Basquiat's just walking down the street and he looks up at the sky and... Uh, the sky turns into the ocean. The buildings are still there, but the blue parts of the sky turns into the ocean. There are people surfing on it. Mm. And it's, again, it was like we talked about earlier, it's pure cinema, isn't mm. it? There's no one, he doesn't turn someone and go, I'm seeing surfers talking, you know. It's yeah. just, he doesn't, he never talked, it's never referenced verbally in the film. It's just this thing, it's just this little moment where Schnabel's going, this is how an artist lives in the world. 
Yeah. We're seeing things and experiencing things that we then transfer into. And it's not some sort of nonsense thing where Basquiat then goes out and paints some surfers. You know, <laughs> so, you know, yeah. in, in sort of less delicate hands, and we've seen Bowie in less delicate hands, uh, it could have been a real mess of a film, couldn't it? I mean, it was interesting um, reading about the production of it. Schnabel had read a screenplay about Basquiat and had been asked to... Um, just have a look over it and advice yeah, because Schnabel he... was a painter. Uh, I don't know; he probably still does paint. He was a contemporary of Basquiat, essentially. And a friend. Yeah. The, the, there's a part in the film played by uh, Gary Oldman, New another, his own. Yes, I was going to say another South Londoner, which is essentially uh, he's a Schnabel character. He's not called Schnabel. No, but... it's a, yeah, it's Schnabel, and it's it's just pl- taking the role of of Schnabel in the film, and. Yeah, so Schnabel read this script that was handed to him and was asked to advise on it. And he was like, yeah, you've pretty much got Basquiat really wrong. So he waited for their option to lapse, bought the option himself, and produced this film with a remarkable cast, um, visually brilliant, just uh, really enjoyable. I got much more out of it than I thought I was going to. Jeffrey Wright as Basquiat. And Basquiat is a fascinating character anyway. Yeah, yeah. Like the documentary Radiant Child is worth tracking down. Not tracking down, it's on YouTube. It's all brilliant. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a lover of paintings, and I don't like his work. I especially dislike it. But he's a fascinating character. Yeah, absolutely. And Jeffrey Wright is so good as him. Michael Winnicott's brilliant as the kind of jealous uh, painter, isn't he? Yeah. Um, and with Bowie as uh, Warhol is a bit of a double act with um, Dennis Hopper as yeah, Bruno Bishop yeah, yeah. Burger. Yeah, like you know, he's asking um, the scene where they first where Basquiat goes into the restaurant. Yeah, and he's got. He, what does he say? He's like, uh, "You got money, Bruno." But he's like, Let me have them. "But uh, Basquiat just throws down some little pieces on the table." Yeah, and goes, you want to buy some ter- art. Yeah, you want to art. <laughs> yeah, and as you say, Bowie uh, turns to Bruno. Really good painter. <laughs> I was trying to practice the accent today. I was pushing Zabby around Mark School Park and like, you know, I'm trying to talk to her and say like these are trees and stuff. But I was practicing uh Bowie as Warhol and I couldn't really get very close, man, you know. Uh Benicio del Toro Yeah was so desperate to appear in the film he offered to work for free. But, yeah. Uh Schnabel insisted that he take Well he wouldn't it's not legal, is it? Yeah. So he just he gave him like the the basic Scale. Yeah, yeah. Which probably everyone got because it's a low budget film. <laughs> but print the legend, Steve. But it is um yeah, as I say, such a rich cast, isn't it? There's a scene there's a great scene where Willem Dafoe turns up as a painter and decorator and essentially it's just like a three minute cameo where he advises Basquiat to get a trade because you can't rely on income being a painter. And like you, it's not a thing where as again, it's not in a lesser film that would have like pushed Basquiat into doing something. But he sort of goes, "Oh right," and doesn't, doesn't, do, yeah. never responds to it. It's just part of the tapestry of the film, isn't it? And uh, it's just so yeah, so much like, better uh, for it. I think the Christopher Walken bit is similar, isn't it? Yeah. Where like I mean, Walken is often like kind of he's so otherly, isn't he? Like he, you know, he kind of is mesmerising. Yeah. But the whole yeah. scene where he interview, he's a he plays a documentary maker or TV interviewer. Or whatever. He's a journalist. Oh, journalist, but right? He's, okay. um, he's filming him, isn't he? I mean, it's based on the real, real clip. You know? Yeah, and it is. He's essentially just trying to uh, get a rise out of him. Isn't it? It's just so odd the way. I mean, it's walking in it, so it's obviously yeah, yeah. going to be weird. You know, walking Twin Peaks. These are odd things. <laughs> yeah, like you were saying about uh, the way. Julian Schnabel portrays the uh, world the way the artist sees it. Um, it's similar to Nick Rogue, I think. It's like uh, um, 
the diving bell and the butterfly, which yeah. you kind of could assume is just kind of worthy rubbish. Yeah. You yeah. know, b- without seeing it. But it's another film it's where it's so it? rare to see a film that just scraps everything you've ever seen before. All the kind of stuff that's been established with D.W. Griffith and John Ford yeah. and, uh, you know, I make the same references in it because I've only got, I'm limited in <laughs> But, you know, uh, Eisenstein and stuff. And just do something like, I've never seen anything like it before. It's incredible. Don Bell and Butterfly. And, and similarly, you've got, um, who's the guy who did Shame and Hunger? Steve McQueen. Who comes again from a fine arts background. Yeah, I think it Goes into of... film and you're like, how, Fresh eyes, yeah. how are you making this as your debut film mm. where it just looks like just this remarkable yeah. well, thing? Well, that is why, isn't it? Because yeah. they're not, they haven't been raised to do things they're exactly not. like everyone and else. This but, is not a dig at Tarantino, but their films aren't made of other films. Their mm. films are made of things that they've seen. They're across. made of paintings. Yeah. <laughs> and Bowie's saying that he didn't want to, he avoided Hollywood at all costs. You know, if you look at the films he's doing in America, like. Is this Schnabel's debut film? I think it is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a painter making his debut film, yeah. you know. And it feels, as I say... It Although, feels imagine like... he might have taken the role if it was playing uh, Andy Warhol in anyone's film. Yeah. He probably would have jumped at the chance, but even still. But again, having the chance to work with Schnabel would have been fascinating for him, I imagine. Mm. It's interesting that Schnabel takes up the film almost like a mission because he fe- he, he fears that Basquiat is going to be misrepresented mm. in the other film. So he, he makes his version, his vision, he gets his scripts and cast and puts it together. Basquiat's family uh, don't like Schnabel's version, so they refuse him the chance to use any of Basquiat's artwork in the film. Fortunately... Being a painter. Being a painter, he's got a, uh, a studio and assistants, so they spend... A few months just making basket yeah, style pieces. That is incredible. It is remarkable. So none of them are direct. Uh... I think some are copies because yeah. there are, are things that they need uh, in terms of yeah important pieces. Important yeah. pieces. But there's one bit where um, there's there's one piece where in the corner of one of the paintings it says A W and there's a date and it's the date that Andy Warhol died. Which obviously, mm. and this is before Warhol dies in the film, so it's just a little foreshadowing, just a little detail to sort of throw in. Schnabel is refused access to Basquiat's artworks, but Bowie is allowed to wear Andy Warhol's actual wigs. So there is veracity there. <laughs> so if you're watching the film, look at the wigs, examine those faces. Don't know about the artworks; they're just they're not loads up in a factory. David Bowie at this point is making music at quite a rate again. You know, knocking out albums not every year, but almost. Good ones as well. Yeah. But, so why... Um, why has David Bowie made this film? And we're talking about Gunslinger's Revenge in 1998. Yeah. You don't need the money. You're producing music again, so you're clearly getting your creative satisfaction. There's no one in it particularly that no. you imagine be a big draw. It's not a known director. Well, there's three films he makes over the course of a couple of years. Gunslinger's Revenge, Everybody Loves Sunshine... And Mr. Rice's Secret, also known as Exhuming Mr. Rice. Gunslinger's Revenge is a spaghetti western, right, that was came out in 1998, right? When we say spaghetti western, um, <laughs> no, but people people know about Once Upon a Time in the West and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a few dollars more. And the ones that don't start Clint Eastwood. But even the ones that do, right, you... It's incredible that they came out... I mean, Good, Bad and Ugly is joint equal, my favourite film of all time, right? And the other two... Also, absolutely marvellous. 
It's astonishing when you consider that each cast member, and I think it extended beyond just English and Italian, just went up and did their dialogue in their own language. Like people are just <laughs> acting in different languages, they overdub it, and you yeah, know, yeah. kind of fits. And like, you can kind of understand the Italian film industry doing that in the 60s. And somehow they managed to knock out some masterpieces and some stuff that's not so good. But in 1998, that's what was going on in this film. You've got the lead actor is Italian. And then you've got Harvey Keitel and David Bowie. Yeah. Like, I don't... Uh, what? And, like, Keitel is the other obvious draw. But he's worked with Keitel. Yeah. And again, done, same as Marley Matlin. Just ring him up and have dinner. He'll say <laughs> yes. You're David Bowie. You don't need to go to Italy and make a bad cowboy film. I do think... There's two kinds of people in this world. Those that jump. <laughs> I do think... Uh, and it's uh, a sort of wider point I've got. If you look at the roles David Bowie has played across his career, he, in the same way he never worked the same director twice, he avoids Hollywood, he never really plays the same role twice, does he? You know, I've made a list of his roles. I've got Ghost, Soldier, Piero, Alien, Gigolo, himself. Gigolo. <laughs> uh, poet, Prisoner, Vampire, Pirate, Pop Star, Comedian, Window Cleaner, comedian, Caricature, Hitman, Goblin King, Cowboy Gangster, Pontius Pilot. Adman, barman, FBI agent, Andy Warhol, businessman, and Nikola Tesla. I mean, it it is almost like, and you know, this is me completely uh, guessing at David Bowie's motivations, but if you're a kid and you're sort of like, I'm going to be in pictures one day, you'd want to tick off Cowboy, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's got to be that, isn't it? If you, uh, and I'm going to put you on the spot here, you've made a list before. Of the three coolest things that anyone can do. Would you like to share that list with the listeners? Yeah, one of them is to swirl gum around your fingers. So, and again, it's a thing where you go, David Bowie, you can buy all this stuff. Yeah. You can buy a cowboy outfit. But I guess the chance to go yeah, but to Steve, Italy. And... The chance to go to Italy and be in a film that he must know people are not going to see this film. But I think it's just he gets a chance to be a cowboy. That's all I and, and, and I say yeah, on a film guessing. set where you're sitting there for three hours waiting for him to call you for your scene. I know. But I guess while you're doing that, you've you've got your gun and you're dressed in chaps. I don't know, this is pure guesswork on my part. But all I can think of is going, I've been a pirate, I've been an alien, I've got to be a cowboy, mm. I've got to tick them all off. I've got to be a cockney gangster <laughs> in a Manchester <laughs> crime film. That's Everybody but, Loves Sunshine. Oh, you've got something else to say. Well, I was just going to say, again, gangster. If you're making a film, you would want to tick off uh, gangster, wouldn't you? Yeah, but not if it's in something of that low quality. It's I, dreadful, isn't it? Everybody it is. Loves Sunshine is really bad. I, it couldn't, is bad. I, I started watching it, got about 35 minutes into it, and I was just like, I'm going to skip to the Bowie films and turn this off, because this is absolute rubbish. I think at this point we should give a shout-out to uh, Bodicea One on YouTube who has put together a, a oh, channel stuff. of Bowie's appearance. So, like yourself, I tried to watch Everybody Loves Sunshine, but thankfully, if you go to YouTube and go to this channel, uh, this person has brilliantly put together just Bowie's appearances in these films, just the scenes that feature David Bowie. So, yeah, like yourself, I watched uh, Everybody Loves Sunshine in PC. It's bad, isn't it? It's really bad. And I think... It's sort of labyrinth bad. <laughs> Um, trying to, uh, again, look at motivation. If we look at, you know, we've talked about roles previously where Sting was up for the same role. 
you know, in 1998, Sting did Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. Oh, he did, didn't he? Yeah. So there's a possibility. It's, good, it's like, it, actually, yeah, yeah, but maybe Bowie's like, all right, I see, playing gangsters, are yeah. we? And sort of went, get talked to all the agent. What we got? Also, um, you know, Goldie's in it at this point. He's, you know, he's do a song with Goldie. Yeah, well, I think Goldie was certainly uh, a huge influence on Earthling. Like, you know, uh, well. Jungle music generally, isn't it? Yeah. So you can sort of see uh, the other thing as well. You've got to factor in is favors. You Absolutely, know, you do yeah. favors for people, yeah. and it's only. I mean, this one he probably did maybe three days of work, maybe two. You know, you it's it's you know cameos in films. It's a lot of the time. It's not because you're like I must be in this. I yeah. will work for free. It's just like oh come on, can we go to Mister Rice? We can. I mean, the films at this point are getting worse and worse, aren't they? This yeah. is this has got to be his worst role, and I would argue his worst film. Well, I've not seen the whole film, Mister Rice's Secret. No, but, but just but from the from the uh, from the plot, it's like from twenty the premise, minutes, isn't there, on YouTube? Of, yeah, uh, of, there's uh, two the... two clips again, thankfully put together by uh, Buddha Seer One. But I mean, the premise is it borders on offensive, doesn't it? I mean, it's about a terminally ill child whose neighbour gives him the power. Of eternal life, yeah, and that's not how terminal illness works. And it just—I no. don't understand. No, it's so saccharine, isn't it? I mean, it starts off um, one of the bits. You got Bowie walking around giving this kid life lessons, mm. like talking to him like he's like a self-help tape. While in the background, you've got like pan pipes and like yeah. plucked guitar playing. It feels like you can't believe what you're seeing. Bowie, mu- he must it, not be happy with it. It feels now. like. Bowie has joined a cult and is making like a recruitment video for mm. Scientology or some other mad religion. But it's not. It also feels like uh, a sort of parody. It's almost like the director saw the Snowman intro and went, hmm. what if we could do that much saccharine in a feature-length <laughs> film but without a really good animation to follow immediately? It's just um, really odd. Yeah, it's the it word, is isn't it? Um, it's a Canadian independent film. Like David Bowie I said, mean, I don't know why he's even reading the script, but he said that he liked the scripts. Like he's sort of the sensitivity of it and stuff. I don't yes. know. Very odd, man. Three I mean, odd films in a row he, he, for someone of Bowie's caliber to be. But doing... as I say, with with Gunsinger's Revenge, you're a cowboy. With Everybody Loves Sunshine, you're a gangster. You can see a potential for fun in those performances, or you know, yeah, something it's, enjoyable. In a... In this... Mr. Rice is a 400-year-old man on a lawnmower. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is my point. There's nothing to it, is there? He's not dressing up as anything. He's not performing as anything. He's not even got a moustache and he's a hitman. Do you know what I mean? There's nothing to it except him sort of going, the thing about life, of course, is that... And you're like, What's... why is David Bowie talking mm. about life to a child that's wearing a baseball cap because he's lost all his hair, probably through chemotherapy. And you're like, this is... It's, it's really hard to watch. Mm. Just in the sense of, you're like... It's, this feels really off key and wrong. It's a really odd. And you look at it and you go, it's directed by Nicholas Kendall. Never heard of him. It stars that kid. There's nothing to it. As you say, if he read the script and decided that was the winner. That was 2000 that came out, right? He's getting busy at this point. He has his daughter, doesn't he? And, yeah. Um... That might be part of it as well. I think maybe it was in the interview for that when he's talking about doing stuff for your kids or having, you know, makes you think, that idea. 
does a cameo in Zoolander 2001. That almost feels like he's clearing the palette. Do you know what I mean? He's Zoolander. Sort of, yeah, he's sort of like, he's like, I've done these terrible things, I need to just like press a reset button. And it's a brilliant, brilliant cameo because it's really effective. It's literally 10 seconds. It's like his shortest role since The Virgin Soldiers yeah. where there's essentially a challenge. And they put on, they put Let's Dance on so you know it's Bowie. He just did, a bit of he, Let's he, Dance. He walks out of the crowd and sort of goes, but doesn't even say who he is, just sort of goes, uh, maybe I can help. And a little caption comes up, <laughs> Bowie, then Let's Dance. Yeah. And it's brilliant. And you sort of go, Oh, he's good, isn't he? And then there is a, a you know, uh, almost like a fresh start, isn't there? That leads us into. Yeah, well, there's a five year break. Um, he also has a bit of a break from music. There's some overlap, isn't there? And then in 2006, he comes back with a prestige, the best film of his career. Didn't want to do it. Didn't he? Had no interest in the part whatsoever. Christopher Nolan had to go over. He he was sent the script and was told, we'd like you to play uh, Nicholas Tesla. And he was like, I've got no interest. So Christopher Nolan flies over to New York and to, to convince David Bowie to do the film. And within two minutes of talking to Christopher Nolan, he goes, yeah, well, I'll do it then. So it's clearly yeah. a wind-up. And he's like, no, no. No, or your... you've got a bit of a key there where he finds it difficult to say no. The Prestige is a film directed by Christopher Nolan about rival magicians at the forefront and rival electromagneteers in the background. Yeah, um, yeah there's a lot of uh, there's a lot in of there. duality. And there's, and, yeah, and there's even bits where if you if you say what genre it is, you're kind of giving bits away. Absolutely, can, yeah. I mean, it's a marvelous film. Really good. It's densely packed it's so it's so thrilling isn't it it's it's just it's perfectly done and similar to uh Pontius Pilate in Last Temptation of Christ and Andy Warhol in Basquiat David Bowie plays a character from history um in this case Nikola Tesla who was uh an eccentric genius there's a feeling now that if he was alive today. He'd be diagnosed with OCD. He had very particular well, he'd be ways. Two hundred, wouldn't he? <laughs> yeah, but Mr. Rice's. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he he had very particular ways of eating food and whatnot. And from the sound of things, he, he was undiagnosed uh, obsessive compulsive. But at the same time, was a, a you know an innovator in uh, electromagnetism. Spent his career being attacked and besmirched by men in the employ of Thomas Edison. Yeah, he got had... boyed by Edison big time, didn't yeah. he? Edison had a, a rival, inferior electrical product, but uh, one through, through nefarious means. Very much the VHS to uh, Nick and Tesla's <laughs> Betamax. Um, he, yeah, he's, he's a fascinating character, Tesla. He is. You'd think Bo might jump at the chance to play uh, a Tesla. Yeah, I absolutely. Yeah, I mean, does. I stayed in a hotel in New York, the New Yorker, partly because Nikola Tesla lived his last few years and died. I was like, brilliant. You know, When I asked the guy, like, which room was it? He was just like... Very vague. I think we got a plaque somewhere, you know. All right, I'd imagine he'd go, uh, what one year? And you go 216, he goes, yes. That yeah, one. Yeah, yeah 216. <laughs> it's, uh, I would argue, David Bowie's greatest entrance on film. The first time we see Nikola Tesla, he's walking across a platform uh, filled with electricity, and he just walks through it unscathed. It's, um, yeah, remarkable visual effect. Andy Serkis plays his 
assistant. It's a you know, it's a very good film with a very good cast. He he basically he don't do a great deal, does he? You no, know, it's, it's again, not it's like very Andy much Warhol where he's made like massive choices uh, yeah. in terms of the voice and the physical stuff. Yeah. Although I guess there's sort of more to base yourself on with Warhol. But it's very he much just comes in, he does it's a, a, it's just a little bit of you know, it moves the plot along and yeah, it does a Yugoslav accent. Yeah. Yeah, the accent's uh one of his better ones. We're not uh looking at Agent Jeffries. And that's it, really, isn't it? Um, there's, we'll talk about a couple of voice performances and a couple more cameos. But that's the last time he had a substantial acting role. Yeah. He appears in August in 2008. Yeah, I've not seen that. He, he plays said a on character. Wikipedia cameo, and at this point, I was like, I'm not, I can't watch another hour and a half just to see. <laughs> um, he plays a character called Cyrus Ogilvy. Uh, who's a businessman and he's performing opposite uh, Josh Hartnett and it's just not good to see. Rip Torn's in it, you know, maybe fancied a bit of a man who fell to earth reunion. Just ring him up for dinner, David. You don't yeah. need to make a film to see these people. No, but cameos, it's so easy to just bang out a day of cameo work, isn't it? Yeah. I don't, I don't need to read too much into it. After the Invisibles, he plays Emperor Maltazard. Maltazard, yeah. And in SpongeBob SquarePants, he does the voice of, is it LRH? Yeah, yeah. Who's basically a blue meanie. Yeah. Um, After the Invisibles, directed by Luke uh, Besson, so you can, again... Oh, is it? Yeah, you can it. see the appeal of the chance to work yeah, with... Yeah, yeah. What plus voice works? You just turn up and you, you know, just wear tracksuit bottoms. Well, and also, uh, across the films, it's a series of free films now. And, you know, Let's Dance and Rebel Rebel turn up on the soundtrack. Yeah, like there's a bit of a, there's a post-credit bit where um, the baddies are all singing Rebel Rebel. So you I'd know. love to see an animated film where they didn't have modern pop songs in it. <laughs> or like shop names that were puns. Was it Shrek who... Yeah, really, you know, I'm a Post-credit. Oh, yeah. Really don't understand the, the hype that's around this Shrek. <laughs> No, do you know what I mean, though? It's like, it was not... Like the Pixar films that were just like... They were knocking out the park at Pixar. And then Shrek comes along and people were acting as if it was as good. Um, Band Slam? Yeah. Literally him, ten seconds. Yeah, it's just watching... Uh, him looking at a laptop. Yeah. Don't really understand the point, to be honest. Yeah. But unless it's he, odd, because he doesn't Maybe he's mentioned to... earlier in the film or something. You yeah. Know? You know, I'd love to see this YouTube video of me. David Bowie. <laughs> oh, yeah, I hope he um, returns to acting. He's sort of retired from music, didn't he? And then obviously came out with this latest record out of nowhere almost. A lot of people don't like the process, do they, of making films? It's you long, know, sitting in your trailer for all this time or, you know, just repeating the same words over and over again. And if you really don't need to do it in terms of, like, your legacy or money or anything... And you have the drive to do it. Yeah. That's the thing, isn't it? But maybe, you know, if the right thing comes along again, I'd love to see Bo back on, back on film. Well, also cameos as well. You know, don't necessarily... No, but cameos, it's just so insubstantial, isn't it? Well, I don't know, but he's done uh, a couple of things on TV shows. Yeah, Dream On. Which I remember from the time. Yeah, well, I put a, put a tweet out yesterday, uh, at Yids, Steve's at Vince Wales, I'm also at Jamak and Maria at SLHC, to see if people remembered it from the time. And quite a few people did. Obviously, people were just, like, say, four or five years older than me, and more. I I remember it from the time and had no idea that in 1991 I was enjoying HBO television shows. Yeah. 
Well, well, Larry Sanders was a similar time. Yeah, I remember yeah. that being on television, but not watching it personally. Yeah, I really enjoyed Dream On at the time, and found this both and then watched a bit more of it. And you're like, uh, it's, for me, it's unwatchable now. The whole the whole premise of the show is that very broad, yeah. But also the the dropping in of clips that are sometimes yeah, right and sometimes not. Yeah. yeah, but at the time, I thought I really enjoyed it. And now it's just We've like... You've never seen anything like it, I suppose. I guess, and it's yeah, kind yeah. of It was the people who created Friends, wasn't it? What was it? Yeah, oh, Kaufman okay. and Crane. Right. Although I think there's three of them, Bright, Kaufman, Crane, isn't it, and Friends. But two of them. You've watched so much Friends. <laughs> I've seen the credit sequence. <laughs> but so many That's times... That's John Landis, like directed that episode. Oh, really? So he has worked with uh, more, uh, ah. another director more than once. But I thought it was quite amusing. But I, yeah, I did kind of think I'm not going to be able to go back and watch this. He, it's a great performance from him, a great sort of comedian mm, performance. He plays um, a very sort of stereotypical, catty English director called Sir Roland Moorcock. Yeah, he looks like an RAF pilot, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, there's some good vis- uh, physical comedy as well. There's a great bit where he's talking to two people and they point out that the people he should be talking to, are and he just grabs what would that device be called? Viewfinder. Thing that yeah, are, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. To yeah, yeah. To see the frame. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he just yanks it from the uh, assistant director's thing and looks through it, but like chokes the guy as well. Really. Uh, yeah, that whole scene where he walks in and he just starts tearing these two people apart. Yeah. And he's talking to the wrong people. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. It'd be really nice good. to see him do. Uh, yeah, to have, just have a bigger role in a comedy, say, rather than just turning up and doing like thirty seconds. Uh, extras. Yeah, that's great. I don't like extras, right? No. The Office, I think, is the greatest uh, thing that man has ever created. The Ricky Gervais version, obviously. Extras, I think, I, is I go lazy. from hell. So we're very different yeah, points well, of the... Yeah, uh, I like from hell. You like the I like the Office. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> extras, I think, is lazy and uh, I don't think it's funny. I think it's funny and I've, I've seen all of it, literally all of it. And I thought there was a ha- like three times I laughed in it. Something like that. Like I'm not exaggerating. But the Bowie bit is brilliant. Like David Bowie plays himself. He's in sitting in a VIP area of this club. Very well lit, isn't it? The club. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And uh, quite and, and quiet. Like you can have a conversation and uh, like you know gesture to people. Yeah. Yeah. Know. There's no music because there is a piano. But yeah. uh, David, David Brent, um, Ricky Gervais, <laughs> Andy Millman. He's complaining <laughs> about you know he's made this sitcom and it's rubbish and uh, you know people are mocking him and you know. He's he didn't want to make something for the masses, but he inadvertently has. But there's this great bit where David Bowie he says it, and David Bowie's listening. He pauses and he just turns around, <laughs> spins on his seat 180 degrees, and he's at a piano. Yeah, short little fat man. Well, he does this a couple of little chords, doesn't he? Just to sort of uh, uh, no, not fat man. Uh, you know, he just keeps changing. He's no, so like, it is, yeah, he's fat man. But funny keeps, little fat man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, more of those. Just turn up and rip someone to bits for uh, five minutes. This is what we've discovered he's good at, isn't it? An interesting thing I noticed going through the list and reading about the films. Marlena Dietrich, Spike Milligan, Marty Feldman, Graham Chapman and Jim Henson. Ah, last films with Bowie. Yeah. So don't make a film with David Bowie because you won't make another one, one way or another. I like Labyrinth. I think it's fun and worth seeing and... On Tuesday, the 20th of August, it's going to be screened at the Ritzy Cinema in Brixton as part of a month-long celebration called Ox Jam, which is Oxfam's music and film festival. 
films that belong in charity shops. <laughs> uh, on Sunday, the 18th of August, there's a rooftop launch party for the whole festival. On Monday, August 19th, there's a big party, uh, the Brixton Takeover. And as I say, on Tuesday, August 20th, there's a lab room screening at the Ritzy in Brixton. Yeah, if you want to donate to uh, Oxfam instead, don't go and see Labyrinth. <laughs> donate some money. Go get down your local Oxfam, buy some books or whatever, see if there's some decent Bowie films on DVD or whatever. Make a donation, but... Pers- or even... People are going through Oxfam and they'll be like, Linguini instant, I can't. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Secret, I can't. Maybe buy a ticket for it and just don't go. <laughs> Come on, Steve. Labyrinth. First time I tried to change the world, I was hailed as a visionary. Second time, I was asked politely to retire. <laughs> so here I am, enjoying my retirement. Do you know the one zoo, Steve, the TV show called Zoo? About a giraffe, right? Family of giraffes. But they just act as if they've got opposable thumbs. And they'd just be in the kitchen like she's using a frying pan. But she's got a hoof. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Kids entertainment don't hold up for adults. Stop insisting it does. 